Well, let's go before the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, we know that men shall not live by mere bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And that is why we come before these are words of life. These are your words. And so we long to open up your Bible, your scripture, the word of Christ to be instructed, to be taught, to be corrected, to be encouraged, to be comforted, to be reminded that you love us, to be reminded that Christ died for us and that we ought to have the same kind of mindset and attitude as we here do life in this body. And so encourage us, Lord, help us to affirm these truths, help us to exhibit, Lord, this attitude in our heart as we reflect on Christ and consider him, Lord. We praise you, we ask for your grace, we ask that you would bless me and give me clarity and the spirit to work and apply these truths to our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, church. God is so good to us in allowing us to once again uh, meet here on this Sunday morning. Uh, today is a special day, not because it is the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is always special. Every Sunday it's always special, but it's also a Reformation Day, right? October 31st is uh, Reformation Day. On this day, in 1517, Martin Luther, a monk, nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, Georgia, church door. And, and we often think of Luther as the main character of Reformation, but history proves that although Luther was key character, he wasn't the main character of Reformation. Dr. Stephen uh, Nicole, he uh, has this podcast, Five Minutes in Church History. If you're interested in church history, look it up. Very informative. But in this podcast on Reformation, he says this thing, this very interesting quote. He says, the real main character in Reformation Day is not Luther. It is the word of God. What Luther discovered as a monk is that for centuries, the true teaching of the word of God had been hidden by century upon century of tradition. That's what Reformation Day is all about. It's about pulling back the covers and releasing the power of the word and the beauty and the truth of the gospel. That's why we celebrate the Reformation Day. So it's all about God's word. That's why we're so blessed, friends, this morning and, and every single morning we wake up to have our very own copies of God's word. We're blessed to be able to come here this morning and open up God's word to study, to read, and to apply it. I mean, you're blessed here because as I preach, you can follow along to make sure that what the preacher says aligns with what the rest of the scripture declares because you have your very copy of God's word and you can do your own homework. That is a great blessing to all of us here and myself included. So with that, I invite you to open with me to Philippians chapter 2. Today we come to the next 
one another in our study of grace-saturated community, which is esteem one another. As I've mentioned in the opening sermon at the beginning of this month, so five weeks now ago, all of these one another's, they, they really deepen our understanding of one command, and that is to love one another. So, so this is yet another way we are, to, we are encouraged to walk in love towards one another. Our focus this morning will be on verse three. If you go to Philippians, we'll be on verse three where Paul says the following. He says, in humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. This is what I mean by the title, esteem one another. To esteem means to set a high value on something. To to count others as more valuable, more significant, than you. Before we look at these verses here, I want us to set up the context here in Philippians. The the church in Philippi was one of Paul's most beloved churches. He planted the church in 49 AD, which uh, is recorded in Acts 16 for us. Uh, We do not know how long Paul spent there Um, with those people, but what we do know by reading this book is that he had established over the course of, of this time, however long or short it was, he had established a very close relationship with these people, with the believers in this church. And he writes this letter some 10 to 12 years after the church was planted. So the church is uh, approaching its teenage years here now, in about 60 to 62 AD, And he writes this letter for three reasons. Number one, he wants to first thank the church for sending him a monetary gift uh, through this fellow in chapter two that we find out, Epaphroditus in chapter four. And, And he thanks them in the opening chapter. He also mentions Thanksgiving in the final chapter in chapter four. So first goal is let me just thank them for participating in the gospel ministry by giving me some money so that I can go on and, and minister for the glory of God. Second, the church was being persecuted for their faith. So Paul writes to challenge them to remain faithful to the gospel. And this is what he says in, in chapter one, verse 27, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit, in one mind to defend the faith of the gospel. And finally, Paul here, he addresses an issue of disunity, which threatened the witness of the gospel. And he does that throughout the letter, but also in our text here, right in the heart of our text, he deals with disunity. Now, as we look at this instruction, I want us to see that these commandments that we've been looking at, commands, right, to love, to to bear, Um, each other's burdens to forgive, right? Not all commands are created equal in the New Testament. Here's what I mean. Uh, Some like last Sunday, if you were here last Sunday, we looked at Galatians chapter six where Paul writes and he says, bear one another's burdens. So that's an emphatic, imperative command, do this. This command here to esteem or to honor or to regard one another as more important is not necessarily a command, like it's not given in in an imperative voice here in verse three, but more of a byproduct. 
This is what happens when you do something else. This is what flows out of you. So it's a result. The the key verse or the key command that ties all of these verses together is in verse five. Look at verse five with me, Philippians chapter two, verse five, have this attitude in yourself. Have this mindset, think like Christ. That's the, that's the main command here in this, in this passage. Have this attitude. This is the key to understanding and applying the truth found in verses two through four. When you meditate, Paul says, on certain gospel realities and adopt this mindset that characterizes Christ, then you will begin to walk in humility and you will begin to esteem one another as more important. You will begin to assign value to those who are sitting here as more significant than you. So it's a byproduct. So I want us to read here. We'll begin in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27, and we'll read through 2.11. So follow along as I read. Paul writes, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or remain absent... I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want us to to summarize the the entire portion with this one main theme, with this one main purpose statement as we look at these verses. Paul teaches here that a regular affirmation of gospel realities directly affects how we value each other in the body of Christ. A regular affirmation of gospel realities directly affects how we treat one another and how we value one another. To the extent that we rehearse the gospel, that we understand the gospel, that we read, that we apply the gospel to that extent, we will then value one another. 
And so I, I want you to, to begin here with me by focusing on just three simple points. Number one, we need to first of all affirm some gospel realities, affirm gospel realities. Number two, as we affirm gospel realities, we will begin to exhibit gospel attitude, exhibit the gospel attitude. And number three, we will consider the gospel hero. So number one, affirm the gospel realities, exhibit the gospel attitude, and consider the gospel hero. Paul begins here in chapter two, verse one, therefore, with therefore. The first thing he wants his readers, the church in Philippi, to do was to affirm some concrete truths of the gospel that were real in their lives. He appeals to something that is already true, and not just true of some individuals, but true of them corporately. They have, they have this common reality. These gospel realities serve as the basis for what Paul wants them to do in verses two through three. And, and he attaches these truths in verse one to what came before because he says, therefore, and therefore usually summarizes what came before and, and appeals to cer certain action here. And he specifically appeals to verses uh, 27 through 30 of chapter one. Paul says, what I'm about to tell you is rooted in the gospel of Christ in which you are striving together. And so he wants to continue the same thought. Chapter two, verse one is not a beginning of a new section. It's a continuation of what he's been teaching beginning with verse 27. With verse 27 through 30, Paul is focusing on how they can stand together and how they, can need, how they need to stand together against the opposition from outsiders. And now, beginning with verse one of chapter two, he focuses on how they stand together within the church. This unity within and how it affects them. And so he says, therefore, if, therefore, if, Therefore, if, four times, there are four if statements here. And these conditional statements are not meant to cause doubt. Rather, they identify certainty. Some of, of your other translations, if you have, I'm reading from NASB here, but maybe ESV and some other translations, they choose to translate the word if since with since. Since this is true, since this is true, or because this is true, because that is what, what Paul is communicating here. These gospel blessings are present realities for every single child of God. He is not saying if, and I hope they're present. He is saying if, and I know these things are true, they are present in your midst. What things, what gospel realities are we called to affirm? Well, he focuses on four here. So let's look at them one by one. He says, we have comfort in Christ. Focus on the comfort that you have in Christ. This is the first gospel reality, is the, this encouragement or comfort that they, the church in Philippi, possessed because of their union with Christ. As Paul indicated here in chapter one, verse 29, these believers are suffering for the sake of Christ. They're being persecuted for their faith and right in the midst of their struggle, Paul is saying, reflect on the comfort that you have in Christ, all of you. It's, it's this word encouragement or, or comfort. It's the same word Paul used in 2 Corinthians chapter one in verses three through five. Listen along as I read. He says, blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort in and through Christ. So in a sense, Paul is asking friends, when he's writing to this church, says, church, reflect on this. Have you received comfort and encouragement from Christ? This is what we all need to, as we listen here, reflect. Are we encouraged in Christ? Have you been comforted by the fact that your sins have been forgiven, friend? Are you comforted? Is that a comforting truth? Is that a comforting thought? In some of your deepest trials and darkest moments, have you felt that Christ is near? He's right here to encourage you and to uplift you. Yes? Yes. He wants them to affirm positively. Is there comfort? Yes, there is. Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes, there is. And Paul's point is not that we enjoy this comfort individually. Like, Tim, are you, Jan, are are you encouraged personally? What he is saying is, listen, when you reflect as a church, are you all as one body comforted with the comfort of Christ? And we need to be emphatic in saying, absolutely. Absolutely, we are comforted. We share the comfort of Christ just as we share his suffering So this is the first gospel reality, but he wants to move forward and he says there's this encouragement that comes from love. This is the second reality. We we also enjoy the consolation, Paul says, of love. It's the love that gives comfort. What a wonderful thing, friends, it is to know that God the Father loves us in his own son as his own children. We just read From Romans 5.5, he says, and he poured out his love into our hearts. And today, friend, today as you sit here, God's love for you in Christ has not ceased. A few weeks ago, we we looked at God's love for us in Christ as described in 1 John 4, 8 through 9. But here it is again, friends. The gospel is the demonstration of God's love for us. And just think, If I am someone who is deeply loved by God the Father through Jesus his Son, and you also are someone who who is deeply loved by God the Father through Jesus his Son, then we have something wonderful in common. This is not an individual reality. This is a common reality for those who are in the body of Christ. We share together in this comfort of love. We are loved by the Father. And and, and so this, then, the love of God towards us, as we will see then, becomes the incentive for action to which Paul calls the church to in verses 2 through 4. So as you reflect on this truth and you affirm positively, yes, this is so. I am comforted in Christ. God's love for me is real in sending his son. Then, okay, I need to move now to action. Your action as a believer is never divorced from the gospel truth. The power for us to perform a certain action is always rooted in the gospel indicative, in the gospel truth. God does something for us. 
And then we can act out of it. We don't act in order to get God's love. We act because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Paul doesn't stop there. He says, no, you have some, something more in common. You have this fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We have the gift of the Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit in me. And if you are in Christ by faith, then you too enjoy the gift of the Spirit. It is the Spirit himself from the testimony of the rest of the New Testament that places us into Christ And it is by the spirit that God's love is poured out into our hearts. Isn't that what we read? Uh, Romans 5, 5, right? He poured out his love by the spirit. So as a result, we have this mutual fellowship and partnership in the spirit. We have one spirit in which we stand firm for the faith and proclamation of the gospel. That's what he just said in, in verse 27 of chapter 1. And by this same spirit, friends, we walk. Remember we talked about last Sunday. We walk in step with the spirit and we bear fruit by the spirit. This is a wonderful reality that we too share. Our fellowship or our participation in the spirit should quickly put an end to all internal competitions, should end all factions, for it is by the spirit that we are baptized into one body. And our number one goal is to please him, not one another, not myself. And you see how every gospel reality here affects our action. This is what Paul brings at the front end of his appeal to the church. But he says also at the very end of verse one, if any affection and compassion. Friends, what about the reality of God's mercies towards you? Are they real? Are they real? When you are tempted to think that you are better than me, and when I am tempted to think that I am better than you, we both need to remember Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. A sacrifice that is made possible by the love of the Father for sinners like us. Yes, sinners like us. And as we remember, we are reminded of God's display of affection and compassion. Paul here says, think about this. You are blessed as a family of God with just abundance of mercies. You and I have been looked upon by God with pity with compassion. And friends, instead of justice, he granted us mercy and grace. And this is, this is the, the appeal. And, and, and based on this ground then, right, I have no reason to think that I am better than you. And you don't have any ground to think that you are better than me. Why? Because the ground at the foot of the cross is leveled. Everybody's equal. Unworthy sinners. That's why. Unworthy sinners. Only made acceptable in the sight of God because of his son's perfect work. Not our own. Not our value that we bring to the table. 
And so here's what Paul does, these gospel realities. He says, I want your church, I want the church in Philippi, and I want your Grace Hill Church to be united in these realities. And we're not only united here with this church, but, but every single Christian around the world is united by these realities. Listen, it's not, it's not the gender, right? It's not race. It's not culture. It's not our economic status or other background or some other status. But it is the work of God in our hearts that unites us together. Nothing else. And Paul says, I want you to leave all the other competition, all the other factions alone and just consider for a second, affirm these truths. Are these things real in your life, in your midst? Are you loved by God? Are you comforted by God? Is the spirit at work in you? Do you experience God's mercies and compassions day after day after day? He says, then let those things unite you. You may be down today, you may be depressed, you may be hurting this very moment, but these blessings, these gospel realities, friends, they are yours today, right now. And beloved, this is what what Paul is calling us to this morning as well. Has God given you abundantly? Can you answer that in your heart? And if you answer yes, and you should answer yes, if you're a believer in Christ, then the, then the charge and the exhortation is then give to another. Give to another. Have you been blessed by God? Yes, then become a blessing to others. The gospel is the foundation and the incentive to action. Nothing else motivates the true believer as much as just reflecting and resting and affirming the gospel truths. So where does Paul go next? The answer is found in the next three verses. A Christian who is comforted by his relationship with Christ, encouraged by the love of Christ, remains in the fellowship of the Spirit and enjoys God's abundant mercies, such a child will secondly, notice, will exhibit the gospel attitude. Exhibit the gospel attitude. As as I said at the beginning, a regular affirmation of gospel realities directly affects how we value each other in the body of Christ. And so after stating what we experience here as a result of believing the gospel, Paul focuses on the attitudes and the practices that flow out of our spiritual provision that we just looked at. And and there are two here. In verse two, we find, he says, be united in one attitude. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the spirit, intent on one purpose. Be united in one attitude. He says, be of the same mind. Literally, think the same thing. Think the same thing. Yet the emphasis is not that the church is thinking the same about everything. That that is not the, the application or the implication. Rather, that we should have the same mindset or attitude. Not that you, you be identical, be clones of one another. That is not the call here. The call is for us to have the same thinking, the same mindset, the same attitude about whatever differences we have. All of you, Paul says, should have a certain way of looking at things. You need to have the mindset of Christ, to which he will go on to next in verses 5 through 11. 
Be of the same mind. And then he says, maintain the same love. Maintaining the same love. What love? He says, the same love. What same love? Well, it's the same love that he just said in verse 1. The, the kind of love, right, that God has towards you, you are to have towards one another. And then he goes on and he piles on and he says, intent or united in spirit, united in spirit. Literally, it says, be one souled, have one soul. And if you were to translate that more, it would be something like, share the same feelings. How do you feel about one another here this morning? Right, and sometimes we say, well, Forget feelings, we just got to know the truth and, and you know, affirm the truth. But he says, what about your feelings? Like, you got to feel the same thing. You got to feel something. Like, the gospel, once experienced, unites you not only in affirming the same gospel truths, but also feeling the same kind of love. Not only are they supposed to have their mind set on the same thing, but Paul says it got to involve the whole body, everything, soul. Soul just kind of, it encapsulates the, the, um, your, your other uh, part, right? The immaterial part. It's where all your emotions are. With all your emotions, be intent on one mindset. And then he says, oh, by the way, as you do all of that, then be intent on one purpose, share one goal. And the context bears out that the goal is to be focused on Christ. So this is basically four different ways of saying the same thing. Be united in one attitude. What attitude? The attitude that Jesus had. Be united in that attitude with all your soul. Have one intention, have one goal. You see, the, the Philippian problem, friends, it wasn't doctrinal. Like, we can say he, sit here and say, yeah, well, you know, we don't have a doctrinal issue as far as we know. We're not preaching error. I'm not affirming error here. But they had a problem, and their problem was personal. They had personal disagreements, factions, right, about which we read in chapter 4, for instance. Paul writes in his letter that will be recorded for centuries and millennia afterwards about two women who couldn't get together in the church, who couldn't have things in common, and he calls them out by name, and we know the names of these two women. 2,000 years later, Paul says, listen, this is so important that I'm going to call them out by name because the gospel is at stake. If you guys can't get together, if you guys can't get along for Christ in the Lord, he says, then the gospel will be compromised and the world that's watching you, you won't have anything to say to them. No testimony at all. Paul says that as you reflect on the gospel realities, all of you must adopt a mindset of Christ because only this attitude will help you love people you don't like. The mindset of Christ can help us get along with people we find difficult. The attitude of Christ can take individual minds and agendas and and make them one. And I love how Paul says here, even though this is not the most important statement, but he opens up and he says in verse 2, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. 
Think, think about what he's saying. He's like, you know, if you, if you do this right here, this will bring me mo- the most joy as a father in faith who kind of gave birth to this congregation. I don't know if you've ever been there, but probably when you're in, I remember myself as a young teenager, you know, already kind of thinking, hey, I should probably start doing good things to others, like my parents and my mom, maybe, um, when you stop being too selfish, but yet still selfish, and you want to do something nice, you come up to your mom and say, mom, uh, what would you like for your birthday? What would you like for Christmas? I remember one time asking her, and, and you know, she's like, oh, listen, I don't need anything, you know, like every other mom and dad. I don't need anything. I really just want you to what? Huh? Obey. And you're like, well, that's cheesy. I want to give you, you know, something tangible. And it's funny because now as a parent, right, having four kids of my own, I'm like thinking, man, that if Adele grows up to ask that one time or any other kid, you know, that's probably going to be my go-to answer to because I really don't want anything. I really don't need anything other than just to see, like John says, nothing brings me more joy than to see my children walking in love. And this is what Paul says here. Listen, if you reflect on these realities and these realities impact you so that you begin to exhibit the attitude of Christ, Oh, that makes my joy complete. Why? Because I know that I've preached the right gospel, right? Because only the right gospel, only the right spirit in you can accomplish what I'm telling you to accomplish. That's it. That's all that matters. Think through, reflect on this. This brings me more joy. But he doesn't stop there and he he tells them in verses 3, And four, he says, listen, be united in one attitude, but also value one another. Value one another. Here's how you will demonstrate this reality in in verse two by doing three and four. Value one another. Do not merely look out or uh, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You know, in his commentary on Philippians, Joseph Hellerman, he provides this background into what I think is helpful to understand this background and what the Philippians were dealing with as a church in that particular culture. He says this, archaeological finds from the site in Philippi reveal a socially stratified population obsessed with status markers such as Roman citizenship, public office, and prestigious titles. Persons of every class competed with their peers for these coveted titles and offices, which the victors then displayed in resume form on inscriptions erected throughout the colony. Paul strongly resisted the race of honors that marked social life in Philippi. This is the kind of attitude and the kind of lifestyle that they were restored from, that they were saved from, but you bring that into the church. Remember, Paul is writing Uh, primarily to the Greco-Roman audience here. In fact, Philippi was a Roman colony. And and, and what he is writing here is extremely countercultural. What he says in verses three and four is radically different than what every other preacher up until Paul preached and what every other philosopher told and, and, and the world in which every single one of these 
Greeks and Romans grew up in. 400 years before Paul's letter here, this famous philosopher we all know of him, Aristotle, he wrote about the kind of person every Greek should aspire to be. And look what he says. He says, it is also characteristic of the great-souled man never to ask help from another or only with reluctance, but to render aid willingly and to be haughty towards men of position and fortune. This man will be idle and slow to act, except when pursuing some high honor or achievement, and will not engage in many undertakings, but only in such as are important and distinguished. In troubles that cannot be avoided or trifling mishaps, he will never cry out for help, since to do so will imply that he took them to heart. He likes to own beautiful and useless things rather than useful things that bring in return, since the former show his independence more. He will be incapable of living at the will of another, unless a friend, since to do so is slavish, and hence flatterers are always servile and humble people are always flatterers. I mean, if you, if you catch the, the main point here, Paul here uses the same term, humility, right? And humble people, Paul says, in humility of mind. So he's using the same exact term that Aristotle did here, except Paul is calling us to an action that is opposite of Aristotle. He is calling us to be humble, not the other way around. The Greeks and the Romans, they did not consider humility as a virtue. Humility, he says, was befitting of a slave. Yet Paul instructed the church that if they were to stand together, firm in one spirit, they had to have a specific attitude, but with humility of mind. They were not to be selfish, he says, and conceited. The selfish ambition Um, really highlights the spirit of rivalry, a a partisan spirit. You have a selfish agenda and you will do everything in order to install this agenda. It's It's when we who have this spirit say, you know, I must have what I want. And then he says, empty conceit. Empty conceit literally means empty glory or empty opinion. Your mind is full of your own significance. You think you're all that and more. You think one way about yourself when the truth is altogether different. When we are conceited, friends, we say, I deserve what I want. It's the same kind of idea that we highlighted last Sunday in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, right? Paul says, if anyone thinks He is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You're a liar. Don't blame me, that's what scripture says. I'm a liar if I have this attitude. No, but Christians must be humble in mind, lowly in mind, because only then will they regard, only then will they consider, only then will they count, and will they esteem others as more important, more valuable, better than themselves. Listen, friends, if we're going to esteem one another, then we must pray that God would root out the pride that so often drives us to esteem ourselves above another. Because that is our default setting, right? 
That's our default setting. We want to be honored. We want to be appreciated. We, we want to be recognized. So often, friends, and if we're honest before the Lord, and we should be, we, we read in Scripture that His eyes look right through you. You're, everybody's naked before Him. So we got to be honest before the Lord. And when we are, we find out that so often our motivation to many things, right, is exactly that, selfishness. Even ministries, we don't approach it from the standpoint of serving others because we value them, but because we think we're most important. And maybe I get to do the best job here. The reason why this person is not qualified, well, because there's someone better in the room. This is what Paul is addressing here, right? Our our personal estimate of ourselves is not a recipe for unity. It's a recipe for disaster in the church. How do we know that? How, how, how do we test whether or not we're valuing and estimating one another? Well, he says in verse four, don't merely look out for your own interest. Are you looking out for the interest of another? Are you concerned for others or do you minimize or dismiss the interests of others in view of your own interests? I mean, what does it look like practically, right? Well, friends, just like it was countercultural when Paul wrote to Philippians, right, it is countercultural today. It's the same today. When we consider others as more significant than ourselves, the world sees that, and psychologists around us, they say, well, you just have an inferiority complex. You don't think enough highly of yourself. But the word of God calls us this morning to place a higher priority on the people in this room than on us. I mean, friends, look around. Now you're looking here. Look around. Look around in each other's eyes and faces. They are important people. They're important people to God. They must be important people to you. You're not just writing here in the vacuum. He's saying, no, look Perceive, consider, think. These people are to be treated as more valuable than you. They are so significant and so precious in God's sight. And the question is, do you even know, like the people that you looked at, do you, do you know them enough to care and to know their interests? Like, do you know what the guy sitting, you know, in that row needs or hurt, his hurts, right? His pains, his trials, enough to say, hey, I'm going to consider his own interests above my own. And this is where, where we might begin. I just acknowledge that this church, as small as it is, we're, we're not maybe as tightly knit bunch as we, we thought we were, right? Like we ought to get to know each other more, spend more time with one another. It's a great starting point. You got to know others to become aware of their interests and to stop being preoccupied with yourself. This is where esteeming others, thinking that they're more significant begins, but let's not be still abstract about the application of this particular command. How do we regard and how do we esteem one another as more important? I think we need to ask yet more questions like, what matters to this brother or to this sister? 
right? What matters to them? What is concerning them right now? What would be an encouraging thing to do to this brother or to this sister? Right? How can I serve? Again, why? Why are we asking this? Why are we even concerned about these things? Well, because of the provisions of the gospel that we enjoy in Christ. Our common bond in faith directly affects how we value one another in this body. And it is no longer expressed in selfishness, selfish interests, but other-centeredness. Easier said than none, right? That's the challenge of the gospel. That's the challenge that we have before us. Esteeming the other, considering the other as more important may mean for you practically to change your schedule in order to assist somebody. It may involve some financial cost. It may mean that you agree to, I don't know, we've done a lot of changes in the church and some of these changes over the past couple of years may still not be sitting well with you and it may involve you saying, you know what? Praise the Lord that we can still do what we do and we can praise you even though I may not agree with this style of music or I may not agree with this order of service. That's what it involves. It may mean that we put the person's interest above your personal difficulty. You may be thinking, yeah, but I have so much going on. You know, I have my own issues that need to be cared for. And man, if somebody would just look at me and ask me the right question, I could just tell them exactly what's going on. And and that may be something that needs to happen. But even you, friend, even you this morning are called to do this because it always involves a cost. Always involves a cost. Always involves a sacrifice. Listen, if it's worthwhile, then it's meaningful. Because that's where Paul goes next. To cap off this exhortation, he says, listen, you think this is hard. You think this is difficult. Let me, let, me, let me tell you something about Jesus Christ. And this is where he goes in verses 5 through 11. And in these verses, we can spend probably just nine weeks looking at verses 5 through 11, and we will not be able to grasp the depth of what is being communicated here. But I just want us to briefly look at some truths here that we can apply God wants us to be united in one attitude, namely the mind of Christ. This mindset is the key to everything we're talking about, to valuing one another. And if you're going to exhibit the gospel attitude in esteeming others, then we need to again and again and again and again and again and again consider, number three, the gospel hero. For Paul, friends, there's only one great-souled man One person to whom the Philippians should look up to in order to understand true virtue. We, friends, need to look to Christ to understand what it means to esteem. And Paul says here, just consider Christ's humility in his incarnation and his death. You see, Jesus was infinitely more significant than us. 
infinitely greater, infinitely more important because he was in the form of God, he says. He was equal with God. He was God. Friends, contrary to some of the opinions that we hear today, Jesus did not become God. He was not adopted as the son of God, but in his person, in his essence, the scripture tells in his very being, Jesus was and is God, forever true. And yet, Paul says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or seized. In other words, his equal status and his privileges with God the Father were not the things which Jesus forcibly sought to gain or to retain. I am God. There is no way I'm doing this. Grasping onto these privileges. No, he says on the contrary, this one who is God, this one who is worthy of all adoration and one worthy of all worship and praise this God willingly became man. He didn't grasp. He gave. He didn't climb to become someone higher, but he condescended to us in humility. He emptied himself by taking on another nature. This is what this whole concept of concept rather of emptying is. He emptied himself and the definition of emptying is later defined by what Paul says here. It's the emptying by addition. He emptied himself by taking on another nature, that nature of a man, and he became a slave. So listen, the the Greeks were right in some sense. Humility was the virtue of slaves. That's exactly what Christ became. And so by implication, Jesus counted us, friends, us, as more important than himself. Christ's death assigned a certain value to each redeemed person sitting here in this room. Why do we value one another? Well, it's because God in Christ values you. That's why. To what degree? Oh, all the way to death. All the way to shameful death on the cross. This is the ultimate picture of esteeming others and looking to their interests. Friends, Christ elevated us and assigned value to each member of the church by sacrificing for them. This is real attitude. This is the attitude that needs to impact us found a quote here or, or a poem that was written by Charles Ross Weed, and he was comparing Jesus Christ and Alexander the Great, right? Another Greek. Listen to how he summarizes both of their work. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on the throne. The Jew died on the cross, One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth, the other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood, the other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon. One died on Calvary. One died all by himself. And one himself he gave. 
One conquered every throne, the other every grave. One won all the earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. Jesus here emptied himself for us, we read. Being in the form of God, being found equal to God, he did not cling to that position above, but instead he became a slave below. And what's more, he was born as a man, right, in order to die. Not just become the supreme of men, but the lowest of men. And he did all of this. He paid the incalculable cost because he was looking to our interests. He was counting us, not that we are more important, but that he was more, that he was counting us as more important than himself. That's the picture here. And beloved, when we do this according to the example of of Jesus, then the result is always sacrifice. That's why I said it's going to cost you something. You can't keep your own interest and look for others' interests. And then consider the Christ, you know, Christ's position here in verses 9 through 11 as a result of his sacrifice in light of Christ's voluntary obedience and humiliation. It says that the Father highly or super exalted him. As much as he went and humbled himself, became nothing, became a slave and died on the cross. The father sees this and he elevates the son and he super exalts him to the throne and he calls him Lord. He gives him a name. And because of this, Jesus will be forever honored in this life and the next. Every knee will bow now or later. And the father will forever be glorified in his son. Friends, as we close here, a regular affirmation of gospel realities directly affect how we value one another in the body. We need to regularly affirm these truths, these realities, so that we might exhibit the only appropriate attitude. This is the only appropriate attitude for those who understand the love of Christ towards them. Jesus, he esteems us as his people. He sacrificed himself for us. And as a result, he created a community of believers who could maintain the same kind of focus and attitude to look to each other's interests while esteeming one another. It's a great privilege, friends, to participate in the same work Christ participated. So maybe today, as you're sitting here and as you're jotting down some application, maybe you need to put your wife's or your husband's interests above your own. I know what it is, you know. Maybe you need to sacrifice as your family, as your whole family for another family here in the church somehow. Maybe you just need to take someone out for lunch to get to know them, do it today, maybe. Maybe you need to join or rejoin our, one of our live groups so that you can become part, an ongoing part of our life in the church so that you will know what are the interests. What are the pains and trials and hurts of others? Maybe you need to volunteer in the ministry, in our church, something that you've been putting off because you want to care for others. You want to value others, and that's why you're going to sacrifice your time. Whatever it may be, I trust that the Spirit will lead you to properly apply 
this exhortation. God is good to us. Friends, reflect on the gospel and then you will do great things because the gospel affects you, motivates you to love Christ because you cannot but love if you truly understand his love for you. Father, we thank you. May these words go with us. May you compel us to do great things for you, not because we're great, but because we have the great Christ in us and we have these great realities and they empower us to move forward and to value one another, to esteem, to assign significance to one another. Father, I pray that you would translate that into practice here at Grace Hill. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.